Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 140th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is, how do we actually solve burnout? I'm joined by Jennifer Moss. She is the author of The Burnout Epidemic, The Rise of Chronic Stress, and How We Can Fix It. The publisher is Harvard Business Review Press. Jennifer is an award-winning journalist, author, and international speaker. Her articles have appeared in Huffington Post, Forbes, Fortune, and elsewhere. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Oh, it's great to be here, Dan. Absolutely. So thank you so much for joining me. And briefly, what's the book about? The the book is actually intended for leaders because in 2019, the World Health Organization identified burnout as institutional or occupational stress left unmanaged. And for a long time, we've been treating burnout with self-care, you know, just breathe or take a bath or listen to rain for 15 seconds or just say no to, you know, chronic workload. And what I think that, that, um, sort of distinction that the WHO created in 2019 was that it is not a a problem that we can solve with self-care alone, that we need to really look at this from an organizational, institutional, you know, government policy mindset so that we can truly solve for burnout. So the book is really focused on those institutional stresses that need to be remedied. There's a lot of uh, real really important advice for leaders on how to model the behaviors of self-care and what, you know, what personalities are at risk um, in, in their roles, but also how do we tactically and operationalize the solutions for preventing burnout inside of our organization? So that's really what the, the book focuses on. Okay. Well, I, I love that because I think way too often the stigma is put on the person like you burned out, but I, I think there's a context always. And often that's much more the driver and uh, it affects so many lives and so adversely. So it's really an important book. Uh, let's maybe start foundationally with, uh, you mentioned in the book pretty early on, six main causes of burnout. And I want to kind of move through each of those. And I'm interested a bit in seeing if there's maybe an emotion or two that also might be associated with that cause. So the first one is just pure and simple, the workload. Uh, It's too extensive. It's too extreme. uh, It causes exhaustion and stress. Um, I'm wondering if, you know, there's probably a variety of responses. One that comes to mind is you just go numb. You kind of disengage emotionally. Uh, It also strikes me that fear might be uh, a response to feeling like you're in a situation that's overwhelming. Uh, What can you say about uh, workload stress? Overwork is a very serious issue. Actually, the World Health Organization and the International Labor Organization did this long six-year study and found that overwork is responsible for the deaths of 700,000 workers every single year. And so I think we have 
really trivi- trivialized uh, work and overwork and in so many situations. And now that we're starting to understand the, the kind of implications from a health standpoint and a mental health standpoint, it's it's being taken a little bit more seriously. Of course, the pandemic helped to create some you know, some more uh, language uh, around the topic. It helped to, I think, you know, from a, a healthy byproduct. I guess it got more people talking about burnout. But I don't think people still really see it as as essential. And when it comes to overwork, what also happens when we're working too much? We're seeing this this disengagement, this lack of uh, self efficacy in our jobs. We lose confidence in ourselves. We stop thanking other people. We stop putting value in other people's work because we're so tired. We're so kind of micro-focused on our own issues that we aren't seeing what's happening around us. And it, you know, it just decreases more morale. And then from a business standpoint, it makes people quit. I mean, workload is the leading reason why people are leaving. And so all of that combined is, um, is why I think one of the first things that we tackle from the root causes of burnout is managing workloads. Sure. And ultimately, they leave. Ultimately, they really leave if they, God forbid, die. Uh, But as you point out in the book, they also can leave even while they're moving to those two stages. Because as you note, uh, after you get past about 50 hours or so, you really are not terribly productive. You're not. There's some really interesting stats around that. 55 hours or more every week of working is considered overwork and starts to lead to, you know, decisions that we're making that could end up reducing our lifespan. I mean, these are these are real consequences, right? And so, you know, those are the kind of things that we need to recognize is that we're not being any more productive. Actually, a lot of the data shows that a 32-hour work week makes us, uh, some in, in many cases, more productive because we're much more efficient with our time. We're, we're less likely to steal other people's time because we want to be efficient and we we create a culture of efficiency. And, and that's where work, what we, we don't realize is work is there's times where we're getting into a real flow and we're making progress, but there's a lot of wasted time, especially when you look at the fact that just teams meetings alone increased by 252%. I mean, significant um, amounts of inefficiency. So yeah, we're not really utilizing the best time in our day to be the most effective. Yeah, no, I remember back when I was in corporate life, bouncing from meeting to meeting and Honestly, probably two thirds of them I didn't need to be in. I had no real contribution, but it was a way of showing up and putting in your your time, and um, you know, kept me from the things I had to do, which I then had to do, you know, evenings, weekends, etc., to make sure I got the work done. Um, a, a second cause of burnout: a perceived lack of control, and of course, both the emotions of anger and fear really play around. Uh, feeling like, you know, am I going to aggressively try to seize control? Am I going to give in to lack of control and fear? Uh, so this gets into micromanaging. Then you also have something I thought was really interesting, if you can talk about briefly, the idea of job crafting, which seems like a, a great opportunity in annual reviews if those are still held to go back and look at your tasks. Absolutely. I love the research around job crafting. There's a great research that, you know, I spoke to um, Adam Grant about in a recent conference that we were at, and he talked about Isaiah Berlin's research on freedom from and freedom to. I mean, it gives people this ability to kind of, um, you know, from uh, an 
autonomous standpoint or it having more agency, they can kind of choose how they work best with whom they work best with, you know, how the, where they work best, you know, and we're seeing a lot of lack of agency and lack of autonomy happening with this, where we're working, you know, everyone wants to have flexibility and work remotely or work hybrid. And now everyone, you know, and these large organizations, we're seeing them clawing back that that right that we gave people to have that kind of freedom. And so when you look at job crafting, it really is just giving people autonomy to choose how they do their work, to look at their work in different ways. So mindset, uh, great research, again, there that was done around job crafting was showing when, you know, in this hospital staff, they were in maintenance, the ones that called themselves patient ambassadors who felt like they were, you know, doing more than just sweeping the floors and changing, you know, the the linens and dusting, but they looked at themselves as actually helping their patients to heal by keeping their linens clean and making sure that the air was fresh. That's the difference that we can create if we give people that uh, ability and that agency to choose how they want to think about their job and how they want to, you know, be able to hit their goals. Because it shouldn't be about hours. It shouldn't be about, you know, process. It really should just be about are people hitting those those goals that they're setting for themselves and that we're as leaders setting for them. And if they're hitting those goals, who cares how they get there? It's just that they're getting there, and we need to think about that kind of more uh, because. Obviously, employees appreciate that more, and you see less attrition, and you see more engagement. Yeah, and then there's a chance for them to find meaning in their job or enhance meaning in their job. So, no, I like that very much. Uh, another one of these causes is lack of reward or recognition, which to me suggests there's a lack of happiness involved. And you mentioned uh, it would be great to start, quote-unquote, positive gossip, So, because so often most of it is is negative. Absolutely. I mean, when we see lack of reward and recognition, it's often, I mean, and this is why I say we can't solve for burnout unless we have pay equity (laughs) across the entire world, uh, because lack of pay equity is going to lead people to burn out, especially women are more likely to burn out than their male counterparts. So that's a big piece of it. You know, compensation should be um, factored in when it comes to just the corporate hygiene and making sure that we have, you know, we've thought about that. But when it comes to recognition, like I said, when we're overworked and exhausted, we're not thanking people enough. We're not focusing on it. And lately work has really felt like going, I keep saying this, it's, it's like going to school without art recess or gym. And, <laughs> and everyone's just, you know, no one's enjoying work in the same way. And part of that is because we're not intentionally creating fun. We're not building relationships in a healthy way. It's totally shifted because it's it seems like we're working more, so we don't have enough time. But productive relationships and, and recognizing people for their value is very important when it comes to keeping people excited about their work and being engaged in their work. Um, so I say, you know, spread, try tactics like creating that check-in meeting once a week where you're actually, you know, just talking about non-work related topics, start a, you know, favorite film club, start a book club, start talking to each other about things that light, you know, light you up and, and create bonds in that way. And then spreading positive gossip is talking about people behind their back in the nicest, most positive way. And you start spreading, you know, like, 
positive rumors about someone. So if it comes back to them, it might not. But if it does come back to them, and you hope it does, it would feel even way more meaningful to hear from you know a friend of a friend inside of your uh, the company you work for that someone's saying all these amazing things about you. Um, it's a network effect. It's it's called a social contagion. Great research by Christakis and Fowler that found that these types of behaviors inside of organizations are, are contagious. And so is loneliness. So is depression. And if we want to change the way that the culture is moving, which direction it's moving, we have to really start uh, creating that network effect uh, by, you know, spreading it amongst individuals, but it has to start somewhere. Yeah, no, much more a sense of uh, cohorts rather than just cohorts and that uh, you have some community bonds there. I think that's wonderful. Um, so you've kind of touched on some of the other ones. I think we'll move on here in a moment. But uh, those other ones just to uh, cover the waterfront as poor relations, so a sense of isolation, uh, lack of fairness, uh, injustice, uh, favoritism, which uh, obviously plays in this notion of pay equity. Uh, also just a values mismatch. So uh, I, I've just kind of raced through those other three, but if there's something you want to say there before we move on, uh, by all means. So they, they strike me as involving often uh, that one you know can be drawn into cynicism, contempt, uh, because you don't trust the, the environment. You don't feel nurtured by it. Yeah. And I think, you know, in, if you put kind of all of them in, in a compilation, what it's, what it's really saying is that these aren't root causes. These root causes can't be solved with self-care alone. Yes, leaders need to manage self-care. We need to model it. We still need to care about our own life satisfaction. It's it's still important to take care of ourselves. But when you look at those six root causes, a lot of it is, is um, you know, policy driven. A lot of it has to be led at the highest levels. And then everyone can can move around that. And I think that's a big point is, is that it, it's an ecosystem problem to solve. It's not just on one individual to fix, you know, systemic discrimination and injustice or pay equity. It's um, much bigger for a lot of people. And, and that's, that I think gives people a chance to be let off the hook a little bit. Yeah. So that's where I really want to go next in the, in the uh, interview here is about the role of leadership and the responsibilities they need to take on. So one of the things that, as you point out in the book, is unfortunately there are some leaders who think this is all beneath them, that uh, they, they take a very uh, condescending view of what is sometimes called soft skills. So I'm wondering if you had a chance with somebody who's uh, kind of a um, recalcitrant leader in terms of uh, appreciating soft skills? What might be your, your elevator pitch to them to try to wake them up in a constructive way? Well, it's really fascinating that just literally, I think, I think it was just two days ago that um, one of my professional colleagues, someone that I've been able to work alongside and um, as part of the Global Happiness Council uh, group, the consortium, Jan Emanuel Deneve and George Ward just came out of, uh, of Harvard and Oxford and analyzed over, they've looked at this data and Gallup World Poll data and, and other research that they've done for decades. And they just found that, you know, return on investor, like, um, you know, returns on investment and uh, stock market returns 
are around 20% higher if you have a more well, you know, organization. It showed that organizations and firms throughout COVID thrived versus others that barely survived or didn't make it at all just because we were focusing on preventing burnout and increasing mental health and well-being. Uh, so there's a, a massive business case for it. It should be a human-centered approach to anything when you look at the number of people that will stay if they have an empathetic uh, employer versus one that doesn't. It, it again, the delta is huge between those bosses that are empathetic versus those that don't. You know, when it comes to retention, and you know, uh, EQ is one of the uh, most important skills, and empathy, particular, is an extremely important skill when we look at those companies that are you know really competitive right now, and the ones that aren't asking people to, you know, ignore what they said at the start of the pandemic and just all come back to work and come back to the office and just pretend that I didn't say what I said. And I don't really care if you've made these, you know, big moves to other parts of the country, or if you're a working mother who has to juggle all of these demands, I don't really care about how you feel. We're seeing 41% of the global workforce quit because of lack of empathy. And that, I think, is going to be the super skill. It's not a soft skill. It's a super skill, and it's hard to build, and it takes a lot of intention and effort. It isn't A lot of it is innate, but we can build it like a cognitive muscle, uh, like gratitude and, and others. Um, so that is something for me. I mean, this is maybe longer than an elevator pitch, but I think <laughs> I feel I feel really – you know, like the data speaks for itself, but at the same time, we need to, we need to take a human centered approach to leadership if we really want to be competitive in this next wave. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense to me. So, I mean, one of the things you're saying, there's obviously soft skills that are about as soft as ka-ching because the, the return is so much vaster, but then there's also all the cost and disruption of attrition and versus uh, retention and people who are happily engaged in the work. I brought up the question in part because I've always been horrified by a statement made by one leader who said, I, I don't do feelings. I, I leave those for Barry Manilow, um, which is <laughs> hardly what uh, I would hope for. I think one of the sad things, though, is that too often I've seen a case where it gets kind of the responsibility for empathy gets offloaded to HR but without HR having any real power to make things happen. So in the book, you you talk about there can be this syndrome of endless HR surveys, and yet they they don't lead to changes. Um, Do you have in that area some specific uh, remedies to uh, make the situation better and also make HR more empowered? I really do think that we need to start engaging at the C level, you know, chief well-being officers, chief mental health officers, because at that point, then they are at the table and having conversations with the CEOs about what really matters. I think just, you know, demographically, it's around 83% of Fortune 1000, you know, senior executives and CEOs are are white males and they average around 59 years old. And so it doesn't mean that that's, I mean, obviously I'd like to see more equity, but when it comes to how they were professionally raised, it's a totally different experience than what it is now. And sometimes we do have to walk in someone's shoes to to understand what their stressors are, what their problem space is, what are the things that 
that um, hold them back. And so if they if we don't really have that demographic spending time and understanding what's going on, it'll be very difficult to change this mindset. And with HR, they're kind of they end up being just practitioners and they don't get a lot of strategic say. And that only happens when you have a C-level executive that is focused on not just on HR policy, but on well-being and mental health and burnout prevention specifically. Um, because I think they're two different things that live in in two different worlds, but they overlap. Um, and human resources can play a role, but you do need a direct line of, you know, of business inside of an organization that is purely focusing internally on improving mental health and well-being. Um, organizations that have done that have way different types of policies and HR then is empowered uh, to be able to take those directions in the way that I know a lot of HR people would prefer to be taking, uh, you know, some of these programs. Sure. Well, I can remember I was with a Canadian company. I won't you know, say the name, but uh, they were doing all these surveys and uh, on employees and well-being and so forth. And at, at lunch afterwards, since about half the market research staff was, you know, uh, tasked with running these surveys, I said, what's the real net uh, result of all this? She said, well, unfortunately, uh, the bonuses of the VPs are tied into it. And I said, well, but does that mean the VPs really dig into these issues? And she said, no, not, not so much. They just want to get the highest score possible and hope somehow it miraculously surfaces. So maybe my, my last question here, let's, let's imagine you get those VPs and you get them in a room for, let's, let's say, a day. Uh, you, you can talk at people, but you also have to, I think, empathetically bring them along and get them to experience and really live and feel these, these issues. If you had a day with them, what might be an exercise or two or some way you might approach that conversation to, you know, give it your best shot at trying to make a sea change quickly? I think, you know, this is a great question because I do spend time at the leadership level and having a lot of these conversations. And, you know, sometimes it feels very provocative to them because that's just not how the culture of their organization is working. But what I keep saying is that it's much less nebulous, the solution than you think. I mean, people think, oh, like, okay, solve for burnout, solve for chronic stress, improve happiness. It seems like a very huge task. But when I tell them, you know, it really is based on sort of the the neurosciences of, of happiness and that it is about habit building and that it's easier to operationalize than we think because it's about incremental daily habits, not an overhaul, taking it day by day in a, a, a very, you know, very reasonably uh, managed when it comes to time kind of way. A lot of senior executives just feel like they have no time and that their team doesn't have any time. And to bring in well-being, it feels like workload. And that's uh, that happens a lot. When we don't do well-being programming right, it does feel like workload. If someone's working 60, 70 hours and HR is saying, please, you know, use this meditation app because we spend a lot of money on it, it feels really tone deaf. Instead, it should be, how about we spend the next month 
just reducing the time in our meetings by 15%. Um, How about we block some time off to really set up our, uh, on Monday, set up the rest of our week and give space for that and then measure to see if it actually makes us more productive. Ask people what are the things and the themes that they're dealing with. And this can be just within a manager asking, you know, on a type form, anonymous feedback around what are the things that I just wish I could, you know, have more time back to be able to improve in my day. And, you know, test that. Ask at the time what their job satisfaction is and level of, you know, stress and then go through an, a test of that. I mean, saving 15% of your time on a meeting is not a hard focus to have for one month and measure again, have people's you know, burnout reduced. Do they feel like they have more time back? Is it helping them to stay more focused? And it's about team, you know, leading within the team and having these you know, small sort of incremental goals, measuring them and seeing what happens. And for managers, getting access to that kind of data and also seeing that their teams are more productive, that maybe their, you know, sales team are actually retaining more clients and making more money for the company. These are good reasons to kind of keep these tactics in play. And so I spend time just talking about all the different kind of simple tactics that create more efficiencies so we can get more time back reduce workload and improve mental health. And I think usually by the end of the day, people feel like, oh, okay, I can totally do this. This is very <laughs> manageable, you know? And and when I hear feedback, it's like that really worked. It's shocking, but it really did work. And, um, and then we see it over time, just change the culture, um, but we can't be impatient with it. We have to really look at this as a kind of a lifetime effort. Sure. No, makes total sense. Well, I, I want to thank you so much, uh, Jennifer, for being my guest. Uh, this has been episode 140. Uh, how do we actually uh, solve burnout? Jennifer Moss is the author of The Burnout Epidemic, The Rise of Chronic Stress and How We Can Fix It. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. In this case, I took one from Ariana Huffington, who said, give up the delusion that burnout is the inevitable cost of success. Until next time, take care and be well. Mm-hmm.